as many of you know from your Bible studies that you do, uh, Luke, the Gospeler Luke is the great parable speaker of all of the Gospelers. He tells more parables in the Gospel of Luke than any of the other Gospels say in their own Gospels. There are 13 parables in Luke's Gospel, more than in any of the other three. And what I love about the parables is that the parables are about us. They're always about us, not about other people. They are intended to be mirrors, not portraits of other people. Parables call us to reflect on the characters in the parable and see where we see ourselves. There are two folks, primary folks in the story today. One is a Pharisee, the other is the tax collector. And for a point of clarification, it's important to remind ourselves who they are and where they stand in society. The Pharisee, the Pharisee comes from the root word that means pure. They sought purity in all things. They sought purity in the law. They were unswerving in their nationalism. And they took great care to avoid all contact with impure people. They are the solid citizens of the city. The tax collectors, on the other hand, they were appointed and recruited by the Roman authorities to collect the despised taxes imposed by the occupying power of Rome. The modern analogy, the best modern analogy that I can come with about who they were, they would be like the Nazi collaborators in the 1940s who enforced the rule of the Nazi party on all the countries that had been occupied. And an image of a repentant tax collector for the people of that day defied all the stereotypes of life in those days. The parable includes the Pharisee. Jesus sort of likes this guy, I think. Remember, he fasts not once a year, but twice a week. He also ties beyond any demands of the law. Helmut Thielke, who is a th German theologian, one time wrote that you can tell when a person is serious about his or her religion when it affects two things, their stomach and their pocketbook. So this guy is a pretty good guy. He fasts twice a week. Have you ever fasted? You know, I do it. I do it during Lent for five weeks, one day a week. And when Easter finally rolls along, if I can wrestle it to the ground, I'm about to eat it, which defeats the whole purpose of fasting. Tithing. Someone the other day came up to me and I said, where did they come up with 10%? Why is 10% in the Bible? Well, and my only response is, I have no idea where they got 10%, but I want to tell you this. 10% back in those days was a lot, and guess what? 10% today is a lot. The biblical narrative is there to invite us to consider where we stand in light of the invitation to tithe, but the more important question in all of this is, what does faith allow me to give? How much does faith allow me to give? And for all of us, the invitation is to consider, what does faith allow us to give? But this guy is an exemplary guy. He ties beyond any demands of the law. And yet, what we can see from the particular picture that's drawn by Luke's gospel, he's not a man who weeps or smiles very much. And he reminds me of the man in a, an old Jewish tale on whose unprotected head rains, rains many, many misfortunes rain down on his head. And the story goes that when he finally protests to God and he says, I have fulfilled every last one of the 613 laws laid down in Holy Scripture. Why is all of this happening to me? There was silence when finally a voice from heaven answers, 
because you're a bore. What I learned from this particular story is this, that the person who seeks his own virtue no longer seeks God. Because to seek your own virtue is too self-seeking an enterprise. It's true, he goes to the temple, he goes to the temple and he prays, but it seems to me that he doesn't praise God, but his own virtue. He worships, but it seems to me that he is worshiping himself, worshiping. I think he sees God at his best as some kind of corporation in which he's earned sufficient stock to warrant the expectation that any day now he'll be asked to join the board of directors. Notice what he says, God, I thank you that I am not as other people are. That's not healthy self-confidence. That's not a realistic sense of self-worth. That's overweening pride. That's overweening arrogance. What Martin Buber, the great Jewish theologian one time said, it calls affirmation independent of all findings. We see this all the time in our lives. We see it at the personal level, and we see it at the national level. Sometimes we tend to judge people, we want to judge people by their actions and ourselves by our intentions, both personally and nationally. And when Luke says that Jesus' listeners regarded other people with contempt, the Greek word for contempt suggests treating people as nothing, which may be the reason why men feel free to grope women. Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves and were righteous and who despised others. Can you be self-righteous without projecting inadequacy in the other person? It happens all the time. It happens when someone does it to us and we do it to other people. Let me tell you a story. It's a story about Andy Olivo. For those of you who are visiting our congregation, he's the priest sitting over there with the dark hair. The rest of you know him because you're members of this church. So Andy tells me the story from back, something that happened back in January. And he says that in January he got into a cab on a rainy day and he struck a conversation with a cabbie about which Democrat or Republican might win the Iowa caucus. The cabbie tells Andy that he thinks Bernie can win. The conversation goes back and forth for a couple of minutes and finally the cabbie says this to Andy and about Bernie. I like him, I, I, I like him also because he doesn't do any of that religious talk. He is a Jew and doesn't practice it. It will be good to finally see a president who doesn't march across Lafayette Park to go to that ugly yellow church. <laughs> now Andy is a better person than I am. So he responds to the cabbie. I guess that's one way to look at it. <laughs> the cabbie turns around and sees that Andy is wearing his clergy collar and he says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I like religious people too. Andy responds, that's okay, I'm not offended. The cabbie says to Andy, cool, which church do you work at? <laughs> Andy smiles and says, that ugly yellow church across from Lafayette Park. The cabbie responds, so how about all that rain today? <laughs> I haven't never asked Andy this question, but did you tip that cabbie? 
Inadvertently, people do it to us. It's almost human nature. It's the Pharisee in every one of us, and we do it to other people. Think of these as some sentences or similar ones that you've used in your life. I may not have liked it either, but I never would have said what she said. If I was going to be late, at least I would have had the courtesy of making a phone call. I would have gotten angry. I would never have gotten angry over something so small. I may not be perfect, but I've never done something like that. Can you believe what so-and-so did? I would never think of being that cruel. I'm in better shape than most people my age. Can you believe how some people have allowed themselves to get into such bad shape? My children are wonderful and do well in school. How about yours? The third Wednesday of the month, I meet with a group of clergy. It's a colleague group. And we were reviewing this passage in scripture, scripture as part of our conversation. And one of my colleagues uh, told me about Ann Tyler's novel, Back When We Were Grown Up. That's the name of the novel. And he quoted the first few lines of Ann Tyler's novel. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a woman who discovered she had turned into the wrong person. I wonder if that's not what happened to the Pharisee. He had turned into the wrong person. I read an article this week about Jonas Kaufman, who the article tells us is very much in demand as a tenor in music circles. And he recalls in the article that he had lost sight of the important things in his life. He says, I have realized how much my life had become dependent on my career. My career should be built around my life. He says, we easily tend to lose sight of who we are and what matters to all of us. And this, of course, can be true at the collective level. How many of us, with two weeks to go in the presidential campaign, have not wondered over and over about whether we have not lost sight of what makes this country good and the envy of the world? Personally, individually, you have to ask yourself the question, have you lost sight of who you are? Have you lost sight of why we have a relationship with God? Have you lost sight of what is important in your life? One of my professors at Virginia Seminary used to say over and over and over during class, he would say, his name is Charlie Price, was Charlie Price, and Charlie would say, God had only one child without sin and none without suffering. And it kept us on the nice and narrow way about our relationship with God. Well, let me tell you something. There are good things about the Pharisees. I don't mean to put him, the Pharisee, completely down. Notice this. Jesus never criticizes the Pharisee for his fasting and his fasting any more than he justifies the tax collector's way of life, which probably included graft and worse forms of thievery. But the Pharisee forgot to keep his eyes on the prize. Comparison with other folks is the way that he built himself up. Now let's take a look at the tax collector and see if we can't find ourselves with the tax collector. He's the crook who may save us from the pretensions of our virtue. As Friedrich Nietzsche likes to remind us, he who humbles himself wills to be exalted. That's one way to look at it. 
And I've always wondered what caused this man to finally go to the temple to ask for forgiveness or to ask for something. Did he go there to ask for judgment, for punishment, which assuages our fits of guilt, makes the old life bearable anew, or was he actually looking for forgiveness? Maybe somebody in the family confronted him, just like an AA. There's usually an intervention that takes place with someone who's suffering from some sort of disease, and family members and very close members do an intervention, as it's called in AA. They do an intervention and help that person recognize that their life is out of control and that on their own, they're not able to carry on without some help from the outside. I don't know what caused this man, this tax collector, to finally appear in the temple, but we know that he appears there. But I don't know if he's seeking forgiveness or whether he's seeking punishment. I like to think that he was seeking forgiveness. At any case, Jesus' point, I think, is clear to me. Mercy can't come to those who think themselves flawless. God simply cannot reach the self-sufficient. Jesus felt, I think, both gladness and sadness for each of these men, but in opposite ways. I think he was glad for the Pharisee in terms of what he had accomplished, but sad that he had lost his focus and had become complacent in his self-righteousness. On the other hand, I think Jesus was saddened by the condition of the tax collector, sad for the, ta the life of the tax collector and all the opportunities that the tax collector had lost in his life, but glad that at last the tax collector had seen the light and seemed to have committed himself to some change. Given their present attitudes, the Pharisee had a wonderful past, but no future, while the tax collector had the opposite, no past to, br to brag about, but a genuine promise of a better future. And I like to think that with God, the future is always more significant than the past. I think that the Holy One is more interested in what we can become than in what we used to be. I don't think that it is God's nature to hold the past against us when we set out with God to become new creatures and welcomes us to the heart of God. In the spirit of this parable, let's look at the totality of these folks. And I say to you, I'm glad for both of them. Let's be glad for both of them. For the Pharisee, the Pharisee in each of us who reminds us of the need for persistence in the practice of our faith. And for the tax collector who keeps us humble and aware of our everlasting need of God's grace. Amen.